Hey everyone, welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast for June 1st, 2020. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other fine podcasting apps. I'm your host, Peter Reitzis in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our big topic today is synagogues, red lines, and free speech. It is an honor to introduce today's guest, Rabbi Eric H. Yaffe, who is President Emeritus of the Union for Reform Judaism, the congregational arm of the Reform Jewish Movement in North America. The URJ represents 1.5 million Reform Jews in more than 900 synagogues across the United States and Canada. Welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast, Rabbi Yaffe. Glad to be with you. Let's get started here. Uh, in 2013, Rabbi Yaffe, you wrote two seminal articles on discussing Israel at synagogue. You explained, quote, Israel is not primarily the state of Israelis. It is the state of the Jewish people. Why is Israel so important to the Jewish people and to you? I believe that uh, the Jewish people need uh, a Jewish state. They need the state of Israel uh, in order to uh, survive. And by that, I'm referring both to their physical survival and to their religious and, and spiritual survival. At a time when anti-Semitism uh, is uh, sadly and tragically uh, re- being revived uh, throughout the world, and we're seeing manifestations uh, in uh, Europe and even in the United States. We are a people with a 2,000-year history of oppression at the hands of uh, uh, rulers and governments who, for one reason or another, uh, uh, hated Jews and discriminated against Jews. We need a place where we can go and where we can be accepted, no matter what, no questions asked. That's an existential need of the Jewish people. And uh, we can't be dependent if, if there's a, a community in Hungary or in uh, another place in the former Soviet Union or in Russia itself, which finds itself under attack. They can't be dependent upon the goodwill of the democracies, uh, including the United States, and the whims of legislators uh, in order to be assured that they have a place where they can go and can be welcomed, can, can be accepted, and can be embraced. Uh, so Israel is that place. Israel assures equal rights to all of its citizens, but Jews enjoy one benefit and one benefit only, as specified in the the uh, Declaration of Independence, and that is that immigration will be open to all Jews at all times, uh, you know, without question and without exception. So that's that's the first reason, and um, you know, it seems to me. Uh, that in and of itself uh, constitutes a compelling cause that every Jew, I believe, can uh, identify with and that non-Jews can uh, surely understand. But in addition to that, there are questions of religion and culture and spirituality. And I believe that uh, there needs to be one place in the world where the culture is a Jewish culture, where the Jews constitute the majority and they set the tone of that particular society. Uh, we need a, a, a place where the national anthem is Jewish and where Jewish holidays provide the rhythm of the calendar and where Jews 
can openly apply Jewish values and the Jewish spirit to every aspect of life, where the the public forum will be one in in which Jewish values are central in in determining, uh, you know, the the outcome of public uh, debates. Uh, where the language of, uh, of the Bible, where Hebrew is is the language of every day, it, Israel is that place for us, and as a result, uh, Judaism is strengthened and. Uh, renewed and reinforced every day. Now, you can be Jewish anywhere in the world, and we have strong, vibrant Jewish communities in every continent, and uh, we're proud that here in North America, our own community uh, is is a community which, for all our problems, is in fact a uh, thriving and a strong community. Uh, nonetheless, we're a minority community and not a majority community. And uh our uh, the culture of our society is not Jewish the way that it is in a Jewish state with a secure Jewish majority. Uh, and so we benefit, as does every diaspora community, from the vibrant uh, uh, Jewish life that emerges from uh, the state of Israel. So those are the, uh, the reasons uh, briefly expressed why uh, Israel is so important to me. Uh, not only briefly expressed, but beautifully expressed in this time when everyone seems to be talking so carefully about Israel. I can feel your love of Israel when you speak, and I want to thank you for that because it's so important to hear this love of Israel. So thank you. Rabbi Yaffe, you have persuasively made the case that, quote, BDS speakers have no place in American synagogues. They do not simply oppose Israeli policies, they oppose Israel's very existence. Now, some listeners, even some Jewish leaders, do not know about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Please tell us, what does the Jewish community and Jewish leaders need to know about BDS? BDS is an organization that promotes economic measures against the state of Israel. It's not uh, widely uh, understood, even by some people who uh, participate in the organization. Sometimes it is thought of as an organization that opposes the occupation of the West Bank. In some cases, those who speak in its name suggest or imply that that, in fact, is the agenda. Now, if you're opposed to the occupation of the West Bank and you want to see it come to an end, well, then you are identifying with the position that I identify with, <laughs> to take uh, one example, and that many Americans and uh, many Jews uh, feel, in fact, is uh, essential and important for Israel's future. But um, BDS is, in fact, about more than that. When they talk about the occupation, they, they aren't talking about the West Bank. They're talking about Israel's very existence, its, its uh, occupation on any part of, uh, of the land uh, of Israel. And this isn't speculation. Um, uh, what I tell people is simply go to their website, and uh, it's right there. And it will tell you that it opposes the existence of a Jewish, uh, of a Jewish state in any borders uh, in the land uh, of Israel, and wants a single state, which would be an Arab state. Now, I, I favor a Palestinian state uh, in a part of the land of uh, Israel alongside a Jewish state. But to say that you don't want a Jewish state to exist at all, you know, you're, you're supporting 
the existence of a Palestinian state in all of, of Israel is an entirely different matter. That's the BDS agenda, and that's why it is opposed by the overwhelming majority of American Jews and Jews throughout the world. Well said. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Eric H. Yaffe, who is President Emeritus of the Union for Reform Judaism. He's also a teacher, a scholar, a writer, a speaker. So to learn more about his good work, visit ericyaffe.com. Com. So I'm going to be asking you questions about these two seminal seminal articles you wrote back around 2013 that I think are even potentially more relevant today. One of them is called Muzzled by the Minority, and the second is called Synagogues, Red Lines, and Free Speech. There'll be links to these articles at voiceforisrael.com in the show notes. So in your article, Muzzled by the Minority, you urge synagogue leaders to, quote, maintain red lines. You wrote, quote, synagogues are not simply open forums. They are Jewish religious institutions that promote Jewish values and work to strengthen the Jewish people and the Jewish state. So please tell us why BDS speakers, in your opinion, should not be welcomed in our synagogues. Well, let me begin by saying that your your quote is accurate in every way. I, in fact, uh, wrote the words that that you uh, just spoke. I want to be clear that in my article, I also encourage broad discussions, wide-ranging discussions about Israel and the synagogue. I suggested that uh, the synagogue had to become kind of a safe place where people could come and share thoughts and concerns and worries and and so on. Having civil discussions about Israel is very difficult uh, in the world in which we uh, live. There's so much anti-Israel feeling and, and so much uh, misunderstanding and so much uh, hostility towards towards Israel and unfortunately to the Jewish community. But in, in light of that, we, we need to make sure that we're not uh, stifling serious, honest, open debate. If so, uh, not only people in general, but uh, uh, even in the Jewish community, our own young people will say, look, if I can't talk about these concerns, then uh, why should I identify with them at all? So we, we need to try and provide a reasonable forum for these discussions. That's That's part one of the answer. Part two of the answer is, having said that, that doesn't mean that everything goes that uh, I want as broad a discussion as possible, but within certain common sense limits. I mean, there are certain things that um, I, that we, we don't do in a in a synagogue. This isn't, first of all, let me make clear, this is, not, this is not a free speech issue. Every now and again you hear somebody say, well, what about free speech and the Constitution and the First Amendment and so on and so forth? I'm all for free speech. Free speech is essential. I'm, I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist. But this isn't a free speech question. I mean, people have the right to say whatever they want. They can go to uh, any street corner, in the corner and stand on a soapbox and they can express their views. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you quoted me as saying, uh, a, a synagogue 
is not a public forum. It's a Jewish religious institution that is committed to certain values, as it should be and as it must be. If you don't believe in anything, there's no reason to exist, whatever, uh, at all. So, you know, that that being said, what, what are the views that uh, we should keep away from the pulpit of a synagogue? So some, I think, are, uh, are obvious. Anti-Semites are not welcome in our synagogues. We feel uh, no obligation to uh, invite people who are going to come and slander the Jews. Uh, Holocaust deniers are not welcome in our synagogues. People who are going to come and suggest that the Holocaust didn't happen or it happened on some level uh, uh, different from, from that that we learn from reputable historians. And similarly, I would say those people who have dissenting views on Israel, fine, let them come and let's, let's hear what those views are. But if, you, if, if your views are that Israel shouldn't exist at all, that uh, Israel shouldn't even be there, the sort of existential question of, of Israel's very being is something that you don't accept and embrace, then it seems to me we, we have no obligation in that case to let you come and uh, advocate such views from our pulpits. If you're going to do it elsewhere, that's your business and your concern. But a different view of Israel is one thing. No Israel is something else. And that uh, should be unacceptable, I believe, in our synagogues. So let me share with you an analogy that I myself gave, just to see what you think. I was speaking to a synagogue leader, I won't say who it was or what synagogue, and I was expressing some frustration about speakers that were coming into the synagogue. And I said, look, you would never invite somebody who was opposed to gay marriage to talk about gay rights. You wouldn't invite a segregationist into a synagogue to talk about civil rights. Uh, why would we invite a BDS activist into a synagogue to talk about Israel? Do you think that those that's a fair thing to say? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant without knowing the synagogue. And, and, of course, of course. Uh, you know, the... the possible context of, you know, which I, I might be unaware. But look, your your conclusion is surely a, a conclusion that I accept, although I, I acknowledge it's not accepted everywhere, although I, I, I think in far more places than not, uh, it, it is uh, the consensus view. And the conclusion is BDS people who oppose it, who are people, uh, by definition, once you identify with BDS, oppose the existence, the very existence of a Jewish state, uh, uh, need not and should not, in my view, be given a forum in our congregations to get up and say that Jews have no right to a movement of national liberation, uh, which is a right that we recognize for other people in other groups, as we must and as we should. So you've written about this, and I've seen it personally. What do you make of this situation where we have leaders who are so exhausted by the topic of Israel that sometimes they find it most easiest just to not engage in Israel programming? I think that's a not uncommon uh, phenomenon. I, I have written about it, and I've experienced it in the sense that uh, when I travel around, I, I hear rabbis and other synagogue leaders who tell me that uh, the topic of Israel is such so fraught, 
that it is easier to avoid it rather than getting sucked into very heated and emotional discussion uh, every time the topic arises. And the problems come from both the right and from the left. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, the problems come from people who are right-wing, who justify any step of any Israeli government no matter what, who are absolutely uh, fanatic about not giving up uh, uh, an inch of the historic land of Israel because they think it's a violation of, of uh, religious uh, commandments or misunderstanding of our tradition. And then, uh, you know, you have have people from the left who maybe be uh, BDS supporters or who otherwise identify with the school or with a group for whom the existence of Israel is not a given, and uh, who are willing to uh, acknowledge and accept the possibility that Israel could could uh, cease to exist. So so and so people say, why why go there? You know, why take the risk? Uh, uh, we want our congregations to be places of uh, you know spiritual nurturing and and prayer and study and community and and the the intense hostility that sometimes is generated by these discussions, better off simply to avoid it rather than going down that path. My own view is that's a terrible mistake. Israel is is central to uh, who we are. Uh, there must be an Israel. Without an Israel, we are a truncated, incomplete people. To allow extremists to take the reins here and to deprive us of the right of engaging on matters of, of such consequence to the Jewish future, uh, I think is a, is a terrible mistake. We have to find a way to have this discussion. We have to find a way to have it civilly. Again, that doesn't mean that any view is welcome, no matter what, no matter how hostile to Jews or to, or to Israel's very being, but we need to do everything that we can to make sure that Israel has an appropriate place in our uh, forums, in the, in both in the synagogue and in other Jewish communal institutions. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. It is our great honor to have Rabbi Eric H. Yafi on the on the podcast, who is President Emeritus of the Union for Reform Judaism. Let me I've had so many conversations with so many Jewish leaders on this topic. And I remember asking one, uh, you know, expressing some frustration about, um, frankly, who teaches our children, because when you when you belong to a synagogue, I have two young children, when you pay dues, when you pay Hebrew school dues, you want to know that the standards of the organization are being applied to teaching and to teachers. And I remember saying once to a synagogue leader, do you even ask your prospective teachers what they think about Israel and how they'll answer questions about Israel? And I was really taken aback when a leader said to me, that's McCarthyism. And I said, it's not McCarthyism to take an interest in what our children are being taught about Israel. That's what we're paying you for. Uh, I'm wondering, do you hear things like this? And I, and what are your general thoughts about this type of thing? Well, the whole question of how we teach about Israel is a complicated question. I've also written about that. I think that takes us fairly far afield in one sense, but... I mean, it's you know, serving of a of a 
of its own, uh, you know, with appropriate educators to to weigh in. But I, I, look, I would say this: first of all, you have when you have teachers, you need, broadly speaking, to know where they are in the Jewish spectrum. You know, no matter what they're they're teaching, it's you know the McCarthyism. Uh, is, it, when you're teaching in a religious institution, what you believe about. Judaism is hardly, uh, you know, it's hardly irrelevant. At the same time, you're not going to give an exhaustive test to somebody who's going to come in and, you know, teach uh, subject X in a religious school setting. But the broader point here is when when we're dealing with younger children, the broad range of, of political issues that, you know, we've touched upon today, questions of BDS and so on and so forth, they are not appropriate views, really, of either the right or of the left. When, when it comes to teaching about Israel, when it comes to, uh, for smaller children, the key is to teach the love of Israel. Uh, first of all, awareness of what Israel is, they may or may not know. And second of all, to create positive connections with the, the people in, uh, of Israel and the, the places that you, you will find there and the wonderful things that, you know, that, that happen there. And uh, small children cannot relate to questions of territories and uh, to questions of, of war and peace and to questions of BDS. That's, that's you know, beyond their, their ability to comprehend and understand. And uh, they really don't, don't belong in, in uh, the curriculum for smaller uh, uh, children. Now, once you get into to, uh, older kids, that's a different matter. And there, of course, if you have a, uh, Israel needs to be a part of the curriculum, and teaching the conflict is complicated. You know, you need to do it with care. And here, you should have uh, you should have good educators with uh, a carefully planned curriculum who will work closely with teachers and make sure that they know what they're doing when they're presenting, you know, these these issues to impressionable teenagers or preteens. Uh, you know, again, there's a way to do that. I'm, I'm not anxious to kind of get into that now. I have written about that, how you, you know, you, you teach Israel to, uh, you know, in a re- religious school uh, setting. It's, uh, it's important. It's got to be done with care. You have to do it in a way that ultimately promotes love of Israel, and at the same time, it doesn't suggest that Israel is perfect, and recognizes some of the complexities that are involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, there's no way you can teach about Israel without mentioning that, and if you're going to mention it, you have to recognize here that Israel uh, you know, has made its mistakes along the way, and while there is no equivalence, in my view, and I think close to equivalence, terms of where the primary responsibility rests. Nonetheless, uh, Israeli governments aren't perfect and could have done things better or differently along the way is also part of the educational process. Those are great points. And I just wanted to share with you the reason I'm asking you a lot about about BDS and not right-wing speakers and topics today is because in the part of the country that I'm calling you from, from Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh, North Carolina, we do tend to have have these issues and concerns arise with far left speakers and not far right speakers. But I do certainly know that in other parts of the country, there are issues with far right speakers. And I will share with you that a few months ago, 
I heard somebody who loves Israel make the comment that Palestinians don't exist. And I said to the person, it's my personal opinion that you're wrong and that's not helpful and that's not how I'm raising my kids. Um, so just wanted to be clear that, right. that well, yeah. No, I, I understand that. And, and, uh, well, as, as you know, uh, some people will know, I served as Rabbi in Durham in the 1970s, uh, Judea reform, uh, uh, my son subsequently uh, was a student at Duke, so you know I have have uh, ties to the area, and and obviously at a at, at a at a place like uh, Durham Chapel Hill, where you have major universities, it, it is true that you're more likely to have issues on the left than on on the right. Although, look, in in virtually any synagogue, you can have uh, uh, certain uh, Jewish members who are going to hold far right wing views, and that can be a problem as well, because sometimes uh, those voices uh, are voices that will attempt to stifle any discussion of uh, political issues when uh, any view is expressed that you know that may not be consistent with uh, the, the current uh, government of Israel, and that that also is uh, you know is a problem. In the broader community, and certainly on the college campus, it's uh, BDS views that uh, that worry you most. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. I'm Peter Reitzis here with our with our guest. I'm thrilled to have him on air with us, Rabbi Eric Yaffe. Rabbi Yaffe, um, do you think the national Jewish organizations are doing enough to educate synagogue leaders and to, and provide synagogue leaders with guidelines and information about anti-Zionists, about BDS? Generally speaking, yes, I do. I uh, I think that there is a lot of material that exists. There are many organizations that do good work in this regard. Ultimately, of course, we have smart people in our uh, synagogues. We're a well-educated community. So um, any given synagogue or federation uh, that feels that uh, BDS issues are a threat can easily find uh, good material that will be available that they uh, they can use in uh, you know combating that that threat. So uh, I I don't think it's uh, it, it's a big problem that somehow this isn't being dealt with. It's being dealt with uh, from what I can see rather extensively. You have written in your examples of who should or should not be invited to a synagogue. You you have certainly not excluded J Street. You you have you have expressed some some differences with J Street over the years. And let me ask you this. I certainly wouldn't say a synagogue should exclude J Street. But if I was planning the programming of a synagogue, I would have concerns about inviting a J Street, a J Street representative. And I want to share it with you. I'm an avid public radio listener. I have been so for about 30 years. I've heard J Street representatives speak many times on different public radio shows. And while you immediately express love of Israel with criticism. I never hear J Street express love of Israel, ever. It seems like they've taken it upon themselves to only criticize Israel. And I know that's very different from from BDS, but I still have a concern about that. 
I, I do you so I'm I fault J Street for not expressing love of Israel. Do you agree with that point, or do you see it differently? I see it differently. I, I um, think first of all, when you look at a, a Jewish organization, any Jewish organization, the question I I ask is, are they part of the family? And uh, what makes them part of the family? I mean, certainly from where I sit, uh, a two-state solution is the heart of the matter if we want to ultimately uh, reach some resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't think reaching such a solution is going to be possible in the nearer term, but in the longer term, I think it's absolutely uh, the only answer uh, that exists. So if a group uh, embraces the two-state solution as the framework that it uses as as it deals with Israeli-Palestinian issues, I consider that to be very positive. Uh, that puts you in the family from where I sit. Others disagree with me, so be it. But um, uh, J Street advocates a two-state solution. So they stand behind a... Uh, the existence of a Jewish state, they believe it should uh, exist alongside a, uh, a Palestinian state and security. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean I am, am uh, in agreement on every position that J Street takes. And over the years, I've I've had my differences with them, some quite quite public on specific issues uh, related to one aspect of policy or another. But broadly speaking. The issue is, do they affirm the existence of a Jewish state? The answer is they do. Do they accept a two-state solution, which is the most plausible resolution of, of the conflict? They do. And, you know, the question that you raise is, is uh, an important one. Uh, you know, it's tactical, but it's, it's important. And, and uh, for people on the left in general, not only from J Street, I often make uh, the point that I'm hearing from you, and that is, uh, when you begin the, this, this discussion in virtually any forum, whether it's a Jewish forum or a non-Jewish forum or a mixed forum or whatever, uh, make it clear that uh, you embrace Israel, you're committed to Israel, you love Israel, and you see Israel's uh, uh, existence as uh, absolutely essential for the Jewish people. And th that should be the foundation on which everything else is built. And if you don't say that, you are likely uh, to be misunderstood or misinterpreted by people who's, who are inclined to see any kind of uh, criticism as perhaps indicative of the fact that you don't really care that much that there is an Israel at all. So th that's an, uh, an important issue for J Street and everybody on on the, the left side of the of the uh, spectrum, and um, you know, I, I think you're right to to express that concern, uh, but th that does not lead me to to say that uh, uh, J Street should not be part of the discussion. Uh, I've been in a number of uh, forums where J Street has participated. I spoke at the uh, the one uh, J Street National Convention myself a long long time ago. And uh, I think we need to uh, welcome them as, uh, you know, they're sort of center on left or center left. And we welcome uh, groups on the right. And, 
as long as they're part of the family, they have a place there. I really appreciate your response. Uh, I'm certainly not asking you easy questions. <laughs> so I got an, I have another hard question to ask you. I've heard some people say, and they'll use the term occupation. I preferred the term disputed, but they'll say BDS would go away if Israel would end the occupation. And I think people who say that don't fully understand that that BDS is really about the elimination of Israel. So what do you think? Do you think they're right to say that BDS will go away if the occupation ends? BDS clearly will not go away. The BDS people are anti-Israel people. I mean, we, you know, we discussed uh, earlier, they don't want there to be an Israel. They're opposed to the very existence of a Jewish state. It doesn't make any difference what Israel does or doesn't do for, for BDS activists. They simply either misunderstand or more likely they're simply hostile to Israel's existence and Israel's uh, positions really have very little to do with their beliefs. But uh, at the same, you know, at the same time, I mean, first of all, I don't have any problem with the word occupation. I think it's a, it's a, it's an acceptable word and that it, it can be properly applied to uh, the reality in the West Bank, there are uh, plenty of American Jews who have issues with the occupation and want to see it end. Uh, They want to see it end in a way that will lead to peace and will also assure Israel's security. And uh, that's the way it it should be. So um, opposition to the, the occupation in and of itself is not a problem. In fact, a, st- a two-state solution assumes rolling back the occupation, at least to, you know, in some uh, measure. I mean, there are a whole variety of ways to potentially create a two-state solution, but all of them are going to involve uh, some, you know, rollback of, of uh, the occupation. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a substantial segment of American Jewry understand that that's part of the reality on the ground, and we need to be very careful not to stigmatize people uh, who have issues with the occupation and suggest that 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 fact somehow makes them anti-Israel. You know, that isn't the case. Yeah, and I just want to share with you, I personally support a two-state solution. What Bill Clinton and Dennis Ross tried to do way back when was amazing. They should have gotten medals for that. Um, and the only reason I brought up my preferred term of disputed territories is because I'm of the personal opinion that after you've offered peace and statehood so many times and it's rejected so many times, I don't like the term occupation for that reason, because I think there have been tremendous efforts to create two states for two people. And actually, I'd love to get your feedback on what I just said, if you don't mind. I think that uh, focusing on sort of this, this semantic question, whether it's an occupation or not, is ultimately is, is not particularly productive. I've, I've been part of those uh, discussions. You can find some of that on my, on my website. Uh, the problem is, generally speaking, people, and I don't know enough about, about you, so I'm, I'm not applying it to, uh, uh, to you, but I, I uh, uh, you know, do do uh, say without uh, reservation that generally speaking, people who don't want to use uh, uh, the word occupation tend to be people uh, who aren't uh, committed to ending the occupation, and and generally speaking, they tend to be people who do not support a two-state solution. 
So uh, it's not an absolute uh, judgment because uh, we Jews are pluralistic uh, and contentious people, and obviously we have a variety of views that we have on such matters. But um, uh, usually, in in my experience, when somebody starts saying, don't use the word occupation, uh, they uh, tend to be people who uh, are not uncomfortable with a permanent occupation in the absence of peace. And uh, I'm I'm, uh, very uncomfortable with both of those things. And I I don't want there to be a permanent occupation, even as I know that it might take a very long time to resolve this. And ultimately, there must be uh, there must be some kind of a peaceful resolution. We disagree a little bit on the terminology, but I really appreciate your your feedback and your love of Israel. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. This will be our last question for Rabbi Eric Yaffe, who's been incredibly generous with his time. Uh, I want to ask you about the 2020 White House Peace Plan. We've had somebody on the podcast recently who spoke approvingly of the peace plan. I imagine you might have a different view, and I'm really curious to hear it. Um, so, So what do you make of the 2020 peace plan? There are positive elements to it. Specifically, there, there are, are two aspects of it that are, are encouraging, at least on, on uh, a certain level. It talks about two states, specifically. It, it says that there, there will be a Palestinian state, so I approve of that. And, and second of all, it's, its approach to Jerusalem while obviously the administration moved the the, uh, uh, the capital to Jerusalem, I supported that. But it uh, specifically says that East Jerusalem will be the uh, capital of uh, the Palestinian state, which is also positive in in my view. Because ultimately, if there's to be a Palestinian state, uh, that in fact is where the capital has to to be. It wouldn't be acceptable either the Palestinians or to anyone in the Arab world, uh, if that weren't the case. So by affirming those two points, I think, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it merits some uh, modest support, but very modest support, because the problem is that once you go beyond that, in other words, the general pr- those two general principles, I think, are admirable, but it then lays out, you know, very, very sort of specifically what a Palestinian state would actually look like. It draws borders, and the borders that it, it draws are simply ridiculous. I mean, I don't, I don't have any, any other word for it. If you look at the state that would be created, it, it's not a state at all. I mean, if you look at... You know, you go to, to experts who know something about such matters, and you ask them to analyze the, the Palestinian state that the, the plan talks about. And what, what they'll tell you is, I mean, all ideology aside, it's not a matter of right and left, simply is not a viable state. That in, economical, in economic terms, uh, it couldn't possibly exist. So uh, to say, on the one hand, we want a state, on the other hand, to say, that this is going to be a state, and then to have uh, you know a, a series of small enclaves that aren't contiguous and are not economically viable is uh, not 
encouraging at all. I mean, they they say, A, we want a state, and B, here's, here's the reality whereby such a state really is not going to be able to come into existence. My own hope initially was that, well, uh, having asserted the, you know, the broad principles that maybe that there would be uh, a negotiating process whereby the specific borders of the state would be adjusted and we might find our way to a, a, a Palestinian state that was, in fact, a viable state. Uh, that hasn't happened. And, and uh, you know, much of the blame uh, here with the Palestinian leadership, which in this case, as in many others, has failed to engage, put its own ideas on the table, even though they were be- beginning with a, with a president who uh, you know, was exceedingly hostile uh, to them on, on, on many levels, nonetheless, uh, engaging in a process and putting their own ideas on the table and, and so on would have been a far more constructive uh, approach. But nonetheless, the plan as it currently exists, I believe, is a dead end. Uh, it isn't, there's, there's no way that it's going to lead to some kind of actual uh, resolution it will not be supported by the Palestinians, but uh, beyond that, I believe it'll get minimal support, if any, from the rest of the Arab world, including the the Sunni states that that uh, either have ties with Israel or have been moving closer to Israel. None of them are enthusiastic about the specifics of the plan. Almost all of them are unhappy about the possibility of annexation that's currently being discussed. So uh, it's very hard for me, on balance, uh, to to be optimistic about what this particular plan is going to produce. I'd like to see them go back to the, you know, the fundamental principles, the declaration of two states, the sharing of Jerusalem, and I'd like them to try again and come up with some specifics that are more likely to lead to a positive result. So if you'll allow me some just very gentle pushback. One of the, so Michael Oren, the former ambassador said that the 2020 peace plan was the most realistic peace plan he had seen. Um, and I think part of that was because the Palestinian leadership is not coming to the table. So if this peace plan isn't to your liking, what do you think should be the next step? Look, I, I, I think I, I don't have any illusions here about the Palestinian leadership. It's it's intransigent. It's divided. It's weak. I, I don't believe that the the current leadership is capable of of arriving at any kind of uh, reasonable settlement now with uh, with Israel, and it just uh, it's not going to going to happen. I mean, there's virtually no scenario where, whereby we can see that happening. So, I think. What it's wise for Israel to do now is to, broadly speaking, uh, to take steps that leave the possibility of a two-state solution open so that when the moment comes at some point in the future, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, a, a, a two-state solution uh, will, be, uh, will be possible. So, um, you know, my own view is, you know, there, there's a book called Catch 67 by Michael Goodman. If you want to know what kind of approach to take, I would start by reading that book. But basically, the a, a, a uh, bestseller in Israel for a year. And, and basically what he says is, look, we're not going to have peace now. 
and uh, peace really is impossible now. So what we need to do is separate ourselves from the Palestinians as much as we reasonably can while assuring our security. In other words, we're not going to pull back the army, and the army is going to stay in place. But the idea is uh, to stop adding to the settlements, to withdraw the settlements that are on the fringes and, the, and that are illegal even under Israeli law, to maximize separation, maintain security, and wait until the Palestinians and, and the Arab world are ready to engage with Israel in a real peace process. For now, I mean, that's not terribly inspiring, but maybe that's really the best that we can do. The notion that annexing uh, 30% of the West Bank unilaterally, which would make a, a, a Palestinian state impossible at a future point, that's not going to, it doesn't leave options open. It doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. You know, ultimately, it will lead to a one-state reality, which is, uh, let me uh, remind people, is what BDS is all about. So uh, the last thing in the world that Israeli an Israeli government wants to do is to create facts on the ground that make a single state reality, you know, the the likely outcome. I mean, that, that's that's not what Zionism is about. That's that's uh, not what a Jewish state is about. The Catch sixty seven book you you're talking about. I haven't read it, but I've heard Goodman on podcasts talk about the book. I think he was on the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast, and he's a really smart and interesting person. Right. The, the book is uh, published by Yale University Press, so uh, uh, if your readers uh, want to know that, 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 they can look for it online. And we'll put this in the show notes. I want to thank you, Rabbi Eric H. Jaffe, President Emeritus of the Union for Reform Judaism, for coming on the Voice for Israel podcast today. We agree a about a lot. We see a little, a few things differently, but I really appreciate hearing your views on these complex topics. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and we will keep in mind that love of Israel is essential for uh, people who care about uh, the welfare of, of uh, the Jewish people, and Israel's pain is our pain, and her safety is our gladness. And if we want to end with any, any thought, let it be that one. Thank you. You're very welcome.